Thank you for joining the Broadway Drumming 101 podcast with your host, Clayton Craddock. Rich Rosenzweig is a veteran of 10 Broadway shows and just started his 11th, Company, featuring Patti Lapone. In addition to several national and international tours, Rich has also been the regular drummer for the Encore series at New York City Center. He's played on over a dozen cast recordings, such as Holiday Inn, Dames at Sea, On the Town, Cinderella, Follies, Ragtime, Finian's Rainbow, and State Fair. He's also teaching privately, and he's written four feature screenplays. We had a marathon chat about all kinds of things, so I broke down this podcast into several different episodes. So have a seat, take notes, because this guy has a lot to share. Stay tuned. If you like what you hear on the show, subscribe to the Broadway Drumming 101 newsletter at broadwaydrumming101.substack.com. That's substack, S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K.com. The Broadway Drumming 101 newsletter is your one-stop shop for everything you'll need to know about playing drums for Broadway musicals. When you subscribe to the newsletter, you'll learn about what it takes to be a successful pit musician with content delivered directly to your email inbox two to three times a week. For $5 a month or $50 a year, you'll have a backstage pass to the world of a Broadway drummer playing on a hit show. As a paying subscriber, you'll receive behind-the-scenes access to the life of a musician who makes a living on Broadway. You'll also be able to read every post, not just those occasional free ones. You'll get access to all newsletter issues in the archives and have an ability to participate in subscriber-only comments and events. If you become a founding member for a gift of only $75, you'll receive discounted private drum lessons and a 25% discount on future promotional products. If you'd like to make a direct contribution to the production of this show, you can reach us at Venmo at Clayton-Craddock, Cash App at Syncopated, that's C-I-N-C-O-P-A-T-E-D, or PayPal at Clayton Craddock. Any amount of support will be appreciated. Thank you for listening. All right, welcome to Broadway Drumming 101. My guest today is Rich Rosenzweig. Thank you for being here, Rich. It's great to be here and finally see you, not in the flesh, but to see you, Clayton. Yeah, after knowing about you for a long time. Yes, and you know, it's funny, you know, we're far apart here, but at our jobs, we're right across the street from one another. I, it, it uh, occurred to me as well. And I, and I hope we get a chance to do a little espresso or something between shows because, hey, that's part of the uh, fun of the community that we have out there. So company will be your 11th show? I think that's correct also. Yeah. Um, 
the only reason why I hesitate is just because of, you know, the before times, as people are calling it, ever since then, you lose track of certain things that you had been keeping track of before. But that, yeah, that sounds right. You started out by playing drums at, I guess, 11 years old, correct? That sounds about right. Yeah, uh, it was after taking a few years of uh, what was sort of uh, an obligatory few years of piano lessons in my family. I'm the oldest of four boys and my parents were very much into the arts. Uh, my mom plays piano and luckily, uh, I will say freely that uh, arts, all of the arts were a big part of my childhood. So I had the few years of piano. I sort of liked it, but that particular discipline wasn't hitting me at the age of nine, 10, 11 and drumming seemed like fun. I, I can say uh, clearly that I wasn't the, that kid who was banging on pots and pans beforehand. And the parents said, all right, give him a drum set, let him get it out of his system. I kind of moved to drums. I wish I could say what the epiphany moment was, but I took the lessons in grammar school, which were group lessons with the woman music teacher. And I only make a point about that is because that would have been at that time in the 60s, very clearly a music teacher who knew a little bit about everything. We all had our drum pads and we took the group lessons. It seemed like fun. And then it took uh, not only the love of music, which was what I was obsessive about, and a teacher that I that I got, I think, towards the end of my years in junior high, a guy named Harry Sabanjan, who actually died uh, relatively young, but was a fun guy to have. And he came over the house. And so I got those lessons with him for about four years. So what are group drum lessons like? I don't think I've ever really done that. Yeah, Especially you as know, a kid. Uh, I think at least in our school system, if you took an instrument in grammar school, uh, I guess all the kids who played that instrument would gather in the music teacher's uh, office. And in that case, there was only one music teacher. So we had, uh, wow, this might sound real prehistoric, uh, wooden drum pads with a layer of rubber on top. Oh, yeah. And we all, this was before Remo pad had, uh, practice pads. And, uh, we learned the rudiments. I think there were three or four of us. I think the teacher's name was Mrs. Marsick and uh, took the lessons. And then my parents opted to get me a used snare drum when I was about 12, but I quickly needed to graduate to some sort of drum set. So sometime around my bar mitzvah, I think, uh, I graduated to a Ludwig set Ludwig standard set. Oh, I'm sure everybody on your show reminisces about that first drum set and mm -hmm. what it was like. I think this was, it wasn't quite that tiger stripe, but uh, got the three piece kit. Very frustrating that I didn't have that floor Tom to make the full uh, Tom Tom fill when I first started out. <laughs> it was um, two rack toms. No, just one. Okay. Uh, boy, I guess it would show my age that, to get a drum set with two rack toms, no, I guess by 1970 or 71, you could have, but it was just one rack tom. And I remember as a, 
as an aside, it's funny we're talking about this. In camp, I wanted to sit in with a drummer who was playing in a rock band, and I'd never played with a band before, but I thought I'd learn a beat or two. And uh, I, wait a second, I'm getting the story wrong. I did have a floor tom. He did not have a floor tom. And when I went to make the fill, I went around and literally, even though I could see in front of me, there was no floor tom, I played, it was like an air ball for a drummer. <laughs> uh, but anyway, that's just a bizarre story about remembering your first drum set and, and uh, those awkward years. You played in a basement of your house? Oh, yeah, the classic basement situation uh, where I guess to, to a certain extent I drove my family crazy. I also practiced in my bedroom, which was pretty small, but that's where my first uh, little stereo was where I would practice to records. But either way, it was noisy. And when I would jam with my mom who would play piano, that might be fun. But still, to this day, I guess, unless kids grow up with a, a, a drum set where they plug it in and put their headphones on, it's just, that's one thing that wouldn't have changed is just driving your family crazy. So you used to play to the radio or did you play to records when you were little? Like what was uh, your, because of my age, you were going to say, <laughs> uh, uh, no, that's a good question. I can. And I was even going to ask you when you say you were practicing, what were the first records that you played to? I, uh, I certainly listened to my transistor radio or the clock radios that uh, was always exciting to get the new upgrade when they went from uh, analog to digital, uh, listened to the radio all the time, recorded with my Craig cassette recorder, the top 40, but I had a record player and I can remember that the first singles that I played along to uh, Evil Ways by Santana, um, maybe a Credence Clearwater revival tune. I don't remember which one. And then I, I wasn't just getting singles. I mean, Beatles, the Monkees, uh, admittedly, because uh, even before I played drums, that was, I mean, it was a cool pop culture thing to get into when you were eight years old or nine years old. But the Beatles definitely, and then uh, didn't, not at the uh, expense of rock or or pop, but jazz really kind of grabbed me pretty early on. That you went to college, I'm assuming. Yes, I did. Uh, but way before, actually, um, you know, if I talk about it, even though all of us talk about uh, all of us drummers talk about the phases we we went through, uh, for me, at least in my world getting into jazz was not an anomaly, but, but it was rare. But the reasons for that were uh, my, my parents liked it. And even though they were the next, the, the earlier generation, uh, I didn't fight them too much on their tastes because I got exposed to everything and they loved the big band era stuff. And I still loved it. I think, uh, well, I should say, bridging that gap had a lot to do with Buddy Rich, because most drummers are going to go through that Buddy Rich phase, and if you were lucky enough and old enough to go hear him, that was too much of a no-brainer that he was going to blow you away, whether you 
were into jazz or not. So you're exposed to that. And as a result, you hear the music and something that was very uh, momentous for me was getting into big bands at that age and Maynard Ferguson, which was a big thing in my high school. I would hear big bands from the time I was 13 and Buddy Rich came through town couple of times. One time he was replaced last minute by Louis Belson, and it was amazing. But soon after, Basie's band came through, and I went to hear them with Harold Jones on drums. And I can say, remembering very clearly how as exciting as Buddy's music was, and again, not taking away from that, but dynamically and musically, Basie's music and the drumming that went with it really had an effect on me. So that, that kept me really into jazz. And then the other thing for me, notably in high school, other than wanting to play in the jazz band, was uh, one of my classmates uh, was the son of pianist Teddy Wilson, the, one of the great jazz pianists of the swing era. And his name was Bill, Billy, and we formed a jazz quintet with another high school mate of mine, Jim Hines, who wound up becoming a very important trumpet player in New York. Oh, yeah, and great. we had a quintet called Take Five, and we were into playing all kinds of jazz, and we did a lot of club date type things, but we were a bunch of 15, 16-year-olds who were playing music for the older generation. But jazz-wise, other than Take Five, we were playing traditional jazz, older stuff from the 30s and 40s and standards. So I got exposed to standards early on. And my tastes in jazz, even though I was still following pop, very much followed the... Uh, timeline of how jazz evolved so that by the time I was in college, and this is my really long way of answering your question, uh, I went to school in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, uh, didn't major in music because my goal was just to get a good liberal arts education and didn't decide to be a drummer till I was probably a junior in college where I thought, if I don't give this a try, I'll regret it the rest of my life. But in college, I got into bebop, and then beyond, and by the time I graduated college, I had joined a trio called Hands that had been a local amazing group that I heard in Chapel Hill uh, that had Frank Kimbrough on piano and Lyles West on bass. And Frank, who became one of the best jazz pianists in New York City, is the guy I moved to New York with. And, uh, your listeners may or may not know that he suddenly passed away last December, which was a tough shock for everybody, but he had a huge, profound influence on my life as a musician. And this is all to say that by the time I was in college and had left college, I was into playing lots of free avant-garde acoustic jazz. So that sort of takes you up to my bio, uh, eventually moving to New York about a year after I graduated. Now, what did you study in college? 
at the school there, they had a major called RTVMP, which was radio, television, and motion pictures, which was sort of their communications department. And uh, okay. I was I was really into film and radio, and I thought that not only because of that, but because that particular major required that you take a lot of liberal arts. And I was always, though it goes against the stereotype of musicians, the kind of person who leaned towards history and English as opposed to math and science. And that was my comfort zone. And that's what I wanted to get out of Chapel Hill. Musically, they were had a pretty decent music department for a big university. I played in the jazz band. I played in the wind ensemble. I did a lot of gigs on the outside, but it wasn't my major. And I don't regret that. Now, why University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and not someplace closer to home? Ah, good question. So the, the, uh, the bottom lines for me when I went were, I think my folks were probably a little overwhelmed that I was the first of four boys that they hoped would go to college. And they said, all right, we probably are not going to be able to do a private school for you because that would be expensive. So a state school, and if you don't want to go to Rutgers, which was a great school for a kid who grew up in New Jersey and would have been less expensive because it was in-state, they said, you can do a state school, but wherever you want. And I wanted to be on the East Coast, but I didn't want to be, I didn't want to be too far from home. I didn't want to be 10 minutes from home. So I picked four schools, uh, UMass, where... I had to at least visit because Max Roach was a teacher there. And I thought, damn, you know, I got to check that out. And the day I visited the school, when I was looking at schools, he was not around. Mm. So that put a little damper on that visit. But when I did visit the other schools, um, I went to University of Virginia to check it out, uh, which is a beautiful school. But Chapel Hill just struck me as a really good, actually liberal haven for uh, a place that was otherwise in the middle of uh, Jesse Helms land, who was the Senator at the time, who was, oh, let's just say not the most forward thinking dude uh, at the time, but, but Chapel Hill was cool. It was, it seemed fairly liberal, although I quickly found out that the student body was more conservative than I thought. And the faculty was always pretty liberal. You said you're a film buff. Yeah, always. I mean, in thinking about doing this and you're thinking about like reviewing things that were a big part of your childhood and your life, I think I always came back to the fact that I was just obsessed about, obsessed about all the arts and I was a huge movie fan, uh, comedy fan. I was obsessed for a while with old monster movies like Frankenstein and Dracula and other than subscribing to mad magazine, like a lot of kids, my age, which you're introduced to satire. I subscribed to famous monsters of Filmland, which was a, <laughs> a really? geeky magazine that focused, <clears throat> excuse me, um, on all the classic old, especially the universal uh, movie monsters like Frankenstein and Dracula. I had the posters uh, and I even went through a phase where I was so obsessed with the minutiae of it that 
the makeup artist who was famous for making up Boris Karloff and Lon Chaney to be the Frankenstein monster and the Wolfman was so fascinating to me that I, I went through a brief phrase, phase where I wanted to be uh, a makeup artist for film, nose putty. And I would lock myself in my parents' bathroom and put on all kinds of fake uh, scars. And anyway, this is kind of a tangent, but as yeah, you and I, I were- say, tangent alert. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but I guess like you and I were briefly talking about before, it's all part of- uh, whatever makes up a person's persona. And all of these were obsessions, but in the end, not only music won out, but jazz in particular. And I'll even say that, <clears throat> I'll even say that uh, beyond being obsessed about drums, I think I was also that type of musician that it was more about the music and wanting to be a part of music in a bigger sense, rather than being a drum head in terms of uh, it being all about the gear and being obsessed about the drummers who had incredible technique, which was all cool. But in the end, uh, I was more obsessed about the music itself. I don't know if I, that makes sense. If you know what I'm Maybe you can clarify that. When you look at films, do you, do you look at it from the bigger picture? It's like, oh, you know, I want to... Did you ever think about getting into uh, that aspect of filmmaking? You know, uh, firstly, I would get out of the way that I, I've never aspired to be a composer. However, you're getting into something that, yes, is uh, interesting for me. And first, I'll just say, going back to what you're saying before, yes, time and again, and listening to your podcast and talking to other people about Broadway drumming, it always hits home that what we do when we're working on Broadway is a very unique beast that, that always, time and again, you're reminded that there's no gig like it. And I did hear Warren talk about it. And it was interesting to be um, explain the way he explained it. But as far as the, and we are a cog in that huge machine, more so than any other type of music where you're still learning in a band, you know, you're the drummer, you're not, it's, it's not just you, but you take that to the highest level. And that is the Broadway musical more than an opera, more than, uh, mm, even just a dance performance where there might be live music. Now, having said that, uh, as far as connecting the visuals to music, I have always been obsessed with uh, music soundtracks and how they affect film and became a fan of, of certain film composers pretty early on, I guess, uh, for an average kid, you become aware of, and certainly before John Williams, who was maybe the first uh, star film composer of the last 50 years. But when I, hmm, let's see, I think two composers in particular come to mind and they had a, an effect on me musically. Uh, were Bernard Herrmann because I was obsessed early on with the film Taxi Driver. And when you get into all the aspects of it, not just the actor and maybe what happens in the action, but 
damn, why does this movie look different? And damn, that music just stays with you. And I learned it was Bernard Herrmann who composed that score and then proceeded to pass away the night they finished recording it. And then you look back and say, his first film was Citizen Kane. And everything in between was monumental. He composed about five or so of Hitchcock's scores. And yeah, if you've seen Psycho and you ask anybody, what are the things they remember about it beyond the shower scene? They're going to say it's that music. So this hit me early on and I wanted to know more about Bernard Herrmann. I even did a paper in college about the music to Citizen Kane. Uh, the other composer was Ennio Morricone, who just passed away recently. And I remember going to see Once Upon a Time in America in New York early on when I first moved here, which, you know, uh, and please stop me if this is going off, off track here, but uh, I remember going to see it and it was not what you would call the director's cut. It was a much shorter film, uh, shorter meaning two and a half hours. And it was, it came on the heels of the Godfather and it was a big gangster epic, but it was made by an Italian, Sergio Leone, the guy who made all the spaghetti Westerns, which in America for a while, I think a lot of people thought they were funny because it was Clint Eastwood and the rest of the actors were Italian and it was dubbed and there was very little dialogue, but that music, and this is also again, way beyond just the hit single record that, that uh, they had with the theme to the good, the bad and the ugly. The music that Ennio Morricone wrote, just you were left with this not as good shorter version. If you see the longer, I guess you would call it the director's cut, it's amazing. But uh, that music really stayed with you. And I had a couple of friends who were not musicians. And after I saw the movie, I talked to them and they said, oh, yeah, Ennio Morricone, we have a a club where we get together and just listen to any Morricone records. Wow. And I'm saying, wow, that's a pretty deep dive. Um, this would have been in the mid eighties, but that music stays with you. Um, and uh, I mean, I'm not going to go through the list of his credits, but he lived to his mid nineties and his resume is, is incredible. And I'm sure a lot of your listeners know who I'm talking about. And then to just bring this full circle, uh, by the time I formed my own jazz septet in the 90s, I wanted in different ways for it to be distinctive. And what can I do that, without forcing it too much, that will make this band a little distinctive? And one of them was to play arrangements of a film score, not just the theme song, but music. And on our first of just two CDs, on our first CD, we did a suite of music from Taxi Driver. And on the second one, which was arranged by uh, our trumpet player, Ron Horton, who remains a great friend and is an incredible jazz trumpet player. And on the second uh, recording, uh, we did a suite of music from Once Upon a Time in the West, which was uh, Sergio Leone's epic Western that had an incredible Ennio Morricone score. And that sort of brought 
full circle this obsession I've had with film music. And I'm, though I didn't arrange them, the, the, the suite for Once Upon a Time in uh, the West was arranged by the guitarist Pete McCann, who was in the group, who's also another great, great musician in New York. Uh, you know, when we think about the legacies we leave, and especially recordings, because they last forever, uh, yeah, I guess I could say that's something that made me happy to have done that. What was your focus right after college? Uh, you know, or did, or did you not have one? <laughs> uh, you know, it's funny you put it that way, but that's a really fair way of asking the question because I think for a couple of reasons in particular, my focus wasn't very focused uh, when I first came to New York. I moved here with the trio, with Frank Kimbrough and Lyles West. We moved to the little railroad flat that I am still in by myself. And I think it was just to play. I didn't really have a plan. And I thought uh, if and when I got married and had kids, that would force the issue. But um, I don't have kids, and it's been a little easier for me. Boy, it's weird to sort of confess this, but it's been easier for me to coast a little bit more without the pressure of raising kids to stay a little more of the bohemian, I guess. I don't want to paint the picture of me living in squalor, but... Um, <laughs> I think that enabled me a little more to sort of coast for a while. I had a couple of day jobs that were freelance. I played all kinds of gigs and uh, I, in my heart, I wanted to play jazz, but I eventually realized that to be a, a jazz musician that made a living, as we all know, is one in a million. And when I found myself playing a lot of club dates, weddings and bar mitzvahs and things like that, I thought, oh, this schlep is not what I want to be doing when I'm 40, 50, or 60. So in my case, and it probably applies to a lot of your other guests, I thought, well, this show thing, which I grew up going to Broadway shows, I love them, but my musical taste sort of evolved into different areas. But what I discovered in high school and college was playing Broadway musicals was kind of tons of fun. You really had to call upon so many different things. And this, right, doesn't this bring us back to what you've discovered with all your guests and what you've lived yourself big time, which is you really have to bring together styles, a certain level of technique, um, reading music. And in the end, a big part of it is just having done it enough so that you know what the conductor wants and what they expect and a certain shorthand so that it doesn't take long to get there. So all of that kind of that along with not having to schlep your drums night after night and do four hours in a tuxedo, <laughs> But uh, doing a show, and, and I will say also being part of an artistic endeavor and product that in the end could be a really big deal. And, and it'll even seem that way, even this sounds so uh, 
not condescending, but uh, you know, you play dinner theater, you play summer stock, you do community theater, which all of that I did. I just slowly worked my way up the ladder in a very linear, stereotypical way. Uh, you get to be surrounded by a huge pool of talent, not just the musicians. And when you're that cog in a big machine, there's a certain level of fulfillment and satisfaction. And the other obvious thing, though, of, of doing shows is the steady work and knowing that the gig is there. And I don't have to plug the union per se, but thank God for the union because it, uh, it enforces and institutionalizes all the things that we really do need to have a career as a musician. Uh, the obvious things being pension and welfare and the less obvious things of making sure they're good work conditions and dealing with a, a, mm, a capitalist profit system where certainly the people in charge are going to try to get the most for the least amount of money. And we want to make sure that we are uh, regarded with a certain level of respect. And so all that's been great, but uh, that's a little bit of a tangent, but all of those things made going into the show world, my, in my mind, the best bet to have a career as a musician. And I have done lots of other things. Uh, and going back to you asking me about jazz in my heart, I wanted to play jazz playing musicals, it's not even fair to compare them, I think, because it's easy to say that playing a Broadway show is 180 degrees from what it is that's required of you as a musician, as a drummer, than playing, let's say, the most progressive jazz that I was playing, uh, which is to say that your goal, one of the things that's in the front of your mind, not even the back of your mind, that when you're is when you're playing a Broadway musical, your job is consistency to play the exact same thing every night. That doesn't take away from the artistry and the level of musical satisfaction that you should find if you do want to play shows, that you should go for. It is hard to play the same thing every night, but you find that zone where there's satisfaction in tweaking the little things. Uh, you never play a perfect show. In my mind, I never do. And I can, look, I've even been thinking today of what it is that was less than great last night when I played company and how I'm going to go for, especially early on in the run, making the conductor happier. Uh, but back to my point, and that is, there's that skill and then playing in a jazz group, and I don't know if you found this, and I, <laughs> I want to engage you more and not hog the conversation too much, but when you go after playing a show for a long time, and then you play a gig where you need to be flexible and you want to express yourself in a much more spontaneous way, that's a tough muscle to sort of reawaken. Yes, so when I haven't played jazz for a while, and I've been lucky on the side, especially during the end of COVID, to be playing in a fun little loose trio 
with uh, bassist Pete Donovan and pianist Frank Ponzio. Very informal, but man, you just want that flowing uh, impulsiveness and, and all that vocabulary that gets lost when you're playing the same thing every night. It's hard, but if I can sort of walk that tightrope a little bit, that's a fulfilling thing. What was the first show that brought you to Broadway? Was it Bells or Ringing, or was it something else? Uh, or no, State I, Fair? It was State Fair. Well, that was the first show that I was lucky to have the chair for, and that had to do with the relationship that I developed with the conductor at the time, a woman named Kay Cameron, who at that time was much more a woman in a man's world. This was the um, mid-90s. What had happened was I had never played on Broadway. I think I had watched a couple of people play. I'd watched Howie Joins play the percussion book for Miss Saigon. Uh, Saigon. No, no, I'm sorry, Les Mis. Uh, I had been playing shows. I had done some tours, uh, lower level bus and truck tours. I had gotten to do uh, a European tour of West Side Story. Uh, so I was definitely moving in that direction, but I somehow my name got to John Miller when they were looking for a drummer to do the national tour of the Will Rogers Follies. So I was nervous as hell, but I thought I got to dive in sometime. I watched Ray Marchica play the show, which was an interesting experience to hear a guy who back then around the same age as me. So young guy who was already one of the badasses of Broadway and uh, to watch him play the show, which <laughs> the configuration in the pit that time was to literally sit behind him, sort of straddling him. It was a, a weird, even back then, a tight configuration where the design of the show, this is kind of a, a interesting aside, which he may or may not have mentioned when he was on your show, uh, there was a, a passerelle where all the um, Ziegfeld Follies girls would, uh, I can use that word because it was appropriate in that context, would march in front of the pit. And it was shaped like a rope. And the way they had it, the conductor, the amazingly talented Eric Stern, who was one of the geniuses of Broadway conductors, I think, a very intense guy, but, uh, incredible musician, conducted the show at one end of the pit, not from the center, and Ray was right in front of him. Uh, it was very tight. He had a spare snare drum that he had on a little... Did he talk about this when he was... Oh, okay. There was a spare snare drum on a little wooden ledge he built over his head. I don't know if it's because he broke heads regularly. He may or may not have, but... Uh, I believe it was very soon after I watched him play the show for the first time that the snare fell on his head <laughs> and, and split open his forehead. It was a little messy. And uh, I know that Ray's the kind of guy who probably didn't drop a beat, but I sat behind him. I watched him play the show a few times. There was a click. And it's funny because I was listening to you talk about click tracks with Paul Pizzuti, which my experience was similar to his has been because most of the shows I play are a little more traditional and we don't use, we haven't used clicked very much 
well, at least in my experience, but I've used them. And the first time I played on Broadway was basically an audition for the tour because John Miller told me, uh, we'd like for you to do the tour, but I think you should sub on the show first. So again, I thought, all right, I got to dive in. It'll be my first time playing on Broadway. I went in. Eric was pretty intense. I had never used a click track before in my life. And the first opening number, which was huge, was on a click. And I was sweating bullets. And everybody's got their version of this story. Uh, I played the first act. And oh, by the way, that band was amazing. Um, the, there were two guitarists and Larry Campbell, who played the great guitarist and pedals. I think he played pedal steel as well. Um, oh, God, help me. I forget who was playing harmonica. There was a harmonica player in the pit. Great orchestrations by uh, Cy Coleman. I'm sorry, by Billy Byers, Cy Coleman wrote the music. And John Miller stuck his head into the pit after act one to look at Eric Stern like, can this guy play? And I remember seeing Eric uh, give a thumbs up or actually, yeah, he gave a thumbs up. I got through the show. Uh, I wound up subbing about seven or eight more times before I went out on the tour. And I'd say, again, this is my long-winded way of answering your question, which was that was my real introduction to Broadway. Uh, I did that. I went on the tour with the conductor, Kay Cameron. We developed a relationship with that, which, as all of us know, is a big part of how drummers get hired. She then hired me for what was the pre-Broadway tour of State Fair, which was the first time a Rodgers and Hammerstein movie musical was turned into a live show. And that went to Broadway, didn't run very long, but that was my first time having my own chair. And as is with many of our gigs, a lot of the short runs, whether we perceive them as stinkers or great shows, because we don't have the same perspective as people in the audience, doesn't matter. Musically, professionally, some of those stinker shows are our best experiences. The band is great. The vibe is great. We love playing the show. State Fair had its issues, but it was a really great band. And that was my first time having my own show. So State Fair lasted for how long? Ooh, I want to say three or four months. Uh, wow. uh, uh, what I do remember is it was an okay show. The, I mean, the, the kind of funny thing was the whole show uh, is about a prized pig that was entered into the uh, Iowa State Fair. And we had a great cast, uh, John Davidson, Andrew McArdle, Bing Crosby's uh, wife, Catherine Crosby, um, Donna McKechnie, Scott Wise, big cast, um, 25 piece orchestra, I think, but we had no pig. So they refer to the pig the entire show. And There's no live pig? No live pig, which probably would have been a disaster. But uh, uh, it might as well be spring, a beautiful song. Classic Rodgers and Hammerstein music that nobody had heard live 
in a musical because it had been done as a movie. And we wound up opening up among our other uh, challenges was, I believe we opened up at the same time, a very celebrated revival of The King and I opened up, which was a story of a few shows I did. And I guess everybody has these uh, career memories where uh, Bells are ringing, the second show I did, which also didn't do well for several reasons, even though it was a blast to play. And those were Don Sebesky charts. Uh, as an aside, I watched Paul Pizzuti play that revival of Kiss Me Kate, mainly not because I was going to sub, but because Don Sebesky had orchestrated that show. And he quickly, in his brief time orchestrating for Broadway, because he was one of the hippest jazz orchestrators of the 70s and 80s, quickly got a reputation for writing really complex orchestrations that gave every musician a shitload to do. Uh, he was told, all right, here's a classic musical like Kiss Me Kate or Bells Are Ringing. It was written for 30, do it for us for 15. And he would write the shit out of it and then give it to everybody and in the rehearsals, I mean, the joke was the sound of brass playing Don Sebesky charts was the sound of dropping mutes. And the, there, there would be a drummer who had to play percussion. And we've all done that. But Don just wanted to put it all there. And he was a great guy. And at rehearsals, you'd say, uh, Don, I just don't think I can do a triangle roll and a timpani pass and play a shaker at the same time. And he'd just smile and go, just do what you can do, man. But you, you knew he was the kind of orchestrator who had to just put it on the paper and try it. So I watched Paul play Kiss Me, Kate. It was a little terrifying because he was, and this was before a Billy Miller machine. And as you know, when you're playing a, a, uh, uh, a show that has drums and percussion and you're the, you're the person, you're inevitably uh, sticking a triangle beater in your mouth and a, and a slide whistle under your armpit. And I watched him do it, and it just seemed very like, how the hell would I sub on the show? But I wanted to watch him do it because about a month later, I was going to be doing Don Sebesky's arrangements of Bells Are Ringing, which was a great score and uh, just didn't do well. But I had a blast. I'm going to eventually, I guess maybe I'll ask you right now. You are a film buff. And you probably have a lot of films that you like, that you admire. Have you ever said, you know what, this would be a great Broadway musical? Oh. You know, uh, that's, that's a fair question to tie in everything here. But honestly, uh, I think my brain probably over the years has gone more to when someone decided that they were going to turn a movie into a musical. Uh, and you just wanted to be there at that first meeting and smack him in the face and say, oh, please, please. When you watch this movie, you don't think of the characters breaking out into song. And, and I'm the first person having grown up on musicals since I was really young, getting to see some of the greatest when I was a little kid. So I understand the, the, 
suspension of reality and seeing characters break into song. But I don't think that way, mainly because, this is interesting, because I tried to educate myself with film as best as I could so I could understand things in a cinematic way. And there are so many things that are specifically cinematic that have very little to do with live stage anything, not just musicals. So they're just two different. I think basically what I'm saying here is I was much more aware of what made those two art forms, live theater and film, two distinct art forms for very specific reasons. You get beyond entertainment and whether it's meant to be the documentation of a real life or, or a made-up fairy tale, but beyond that, they're just two different art forms. So I, my brain would, would rarely ever go to, I'm sorry, I don't have a, I'm sure when we're finished, I'll think of, oh yeah, one time <laughs> I thought this would make a great musical. And actually, hmm. Uh, Let me ask you a question yeah, before sure. you go on. I'm just going to throw one out there. Would it be a hit or a miss? Taxi Driver, the musical. You know what? That's a really good question to ask for a few reasons. One being that... We think about things in terms of commercialism and which things were hits, but the truth is, if you have the right artists behind something, uh, the sky should be the limit. It's art, and it should always never be held back by someone thinking it's a silly idea, because it all has to do with who wrote it. And it's funny you should mention that, because there was a big article in the New York Times just today about West Side Story and about people, uh, reviewers and artists talking about uh, how relevant it is today and how dated and unwoke it is because the movie's coming out. Um, and yes, that's the perfect illustration of talking about, do you want to see a bunch of uh, kids in a gang singing and dancing? And the truth is, it's a hard show to pull off for that reason, but in its purest form, uh, without a doubt that music is arguably the greatest, as far as I'm concerned, the greatest music ever written for a musical. I, I hate, you know, I hate to say the greatest anything, mm. but in my mind, when I was a kid, uh, so seeing a high school production of it, um, it really grabs you. And that's really a testament not to the idea of saying, let's do Romeo and Juliet, which is a very romantic story on top of it being a very violent story, and set it to music and dance and modernize it. Oh, before and, you even go on there. Sure. Sorry, I don't want to. No, it's okay. In 2013, I went to uh, San Diego and played a show called The Last Goodbye. And it was the story of, it was Romeo and Juliet done to Jeff Buckley music. So it was the, the classic story done to something that was relatively modern. Right. It didn't go any further than that, but it was interesting. It was dark, it was violent, but the music was great. And they needed to work on some stuff, but people had an idea and they just made it happen. But anyway, going no, back No, that's... Those are all good things that are actually even making me think right now, which is that I am the first person, I might not say it out loud, but when I hear someone says, 
uh, they're doing a musical about King Kong or they're doing a musical about Spider-Man and you want to go, oh, really, please. And yet you just stop for a second and you think if it really is true that the sky should be the limit. Uh, yes, um, if you did a musical about the Jets and the Sharks and you had the right composer, and let's face it, Bernstein really does stick out amongst other Broadway composers who might have been amazing or who are amazing, but brought something to it that made you think it's possible. So I think what we might want to say here is that as much as history might show that a lot of these are dopey ideas because of what might drive creative people to make a successful Broadway musical that will make money because the capitalism will always play into this. And knowing that that's a big part of it, uh, you should never quash the sky's the limit concept. And I guess all I have to say is Hamilton, a show that I've never seen, I may or may not like because I'm not super in sync with hip hop music. And I, I can't comment on it as much as I know a lot of the creative people involved. But let's face it, uh, that was not motivated by commercial um, possibilities as much as a talented up and coming star, Lin-Manuel Miranda thought, I love this story. I'm setting it to music. And if he explained it to somebody who didn't know who he was, they would roll their eyes. And clearly across the board, people have found it artistically, not just commercially, but artistically a really important piece. It's funny. I'm going to back up a little bit. I really don't know much about Broadway movie musicals, and I'm learning as I go. And uh, I don't even know much about Broadway, <laughs> and I'm learning <laughs> as I go. You know, 20 years in, I'm still learning who the famous composers of the 40s and 50s and 60s were. Right. And a little short story, which I've told a number of different number of times on the podcast is that when I was doing a show called Tick, Tick, Boom, back in 2001, Jonathan Larson would always talk about. I'm going to interrupt. Did you do that? I saw Jonathan Larson perform those tunes at the Village Gate. Oh, really? No, Does that? Okay. do that. No. Uh, there may have may not have even been drums in that, but go ahead. Yeah. I think there was. I don't know who was on, you know, doing that back then. I was trying to be a rock star back in the 90s. But well, we all are at some level, <laughs> metaphorically and or literally. But yeah, go ahead. <laughs> 2001, when I did uh, Tick, Tick, Boom, he was always talking about uh, Stephen Sondheim. And at the end of the of this show is a voice message from Stephen Sondheim. So, you know, during rehearsals, I, was, I think I asked Stephen or Remus, I was like, who the hell is Stephen Sondheim? Mm. It was like, shh. shh. <laughs> <laughs> right. Don't say that out loud, <laughs> at least around theater people. Yeah. Exactly. It's like <laughs> being in a jazz club. Miles, Miles Davis, who's that? Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I learned who he was. And um, so I, I'm going back over a lot of, I didn't really even know who Audrey McDonald was when I got that gig playing with her. I was like, 
my, my girlfriend's like, oh my God, you with Audrey McDonald. She's about to win her sixth Tony Award and blank, yeah. blank, blank. I'm like, okay, stop. let me play some jazz. But anyway. And by I'm, the way, you sound fantastic. I, I, <laughs> as you may know, I, I played a little bit of uh, What a Little Moonlight Can Do. Yes, yes. Uh, with the trio and Audra singing her, I almost want to say bizarrely incredible impression because yes. that's not her voice uh, normally. And uh, I was telling George Farmer how the rhythm section not only was swinging and great and how great you all sounded, but how particularly appropriate was for that particular time and place that you were trying to recreate, which partly because of my movie music obsession, I really I'm obsessive about. So I'm just saying it as an aside, you guys had a great groove that you copped on that. Anyway, that was the Audrey Thank McDonald you. thing, but uh, go ahead. Yeah. So <laughs> just to let everybody know, Rich has a great podcast called Big Noise from Planet Earth. Definitely check it out. George Farmer is on one of the episodes and he was, they were talking about our approach to the music for the show Lady Day at Emerson's Bar and Grill. Right, right. And how we, we actually really did sit there in the, the dressing room and listen to albums from 1959. And he wanted me to hear certain musicians uh, and, you know, and just immerse ourselves in that period. So we weren't trying to sound like, you know, Elvin Jones and, right. uh, and Ron Carter. And we, that was way past. That was not, not past. what that was about. It, right. No, it just, well, let me ask you this to, to your point. Do you not find, and by the way, not knowing who someone is, we're all going to experience that several times throughout our lives because even especially when we think we know everything or we think we've been around, someone's going to say, do you know so-and-so? And you say no, and we're going to find out that that feels embarrassing afterwards. So we're all, we all should experience that because... That's how you learn. Uh, yeah, but, but even more importantly, have you not found as you've evolved through your world in Broadway that it's one of the things that I find most enjoyable is copying a style and something that's appropriate to that era, which is not always that easy for Broadway because Broadway can sort of um, make things sound a little generically Broadway. But if you can bring something... And, and yeah, on Lady Day at Emerson's Bar and Grill, you guys were a perfect example of like, all right, we, whether people in the audience know it or not, you're bringing them to a time and place, and you work specifically on that style. That's a really good point that you made that George said the same thing. You're, you can't just play, even if you're just playing a simple tune with brushes, you can't play it like Elvin. Right. So we... With other shows that I've done too, you know, you have to immerse yourself in whatever era music that you're going to be trying to emulate. And you want to try to make it as authentic as possible. Even when we did Ain't Too Proud, you know, we're trying to emulate the Funk Brothers and we're trying, you know, it, it, one of the best, one of the better and most interesting compliments I got was from this guy named Aaron Spears. He's a drummer that played with Usher and a bunch of other people. He was in the audience one afternoon and, uh, you know, we got done and I saw an inbox, a direct message on Instagram. It says, oh man, you sound great. 
you know, you guys sound so authentic, man. Just here's my number and hit me up uh, whenever you want. I'm like, feels good, huh? <laughs> it's like, wow, this dude is actually listening. So yeah, it's 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 really it feels good to get compliments from people that you look up to, saying that you sound right for that show, which it's important to know the history of what you're doing because, and also knowing some of the background of what you're trying to do, because sometimes you're going to have to reach into that vocabulary, as we talked about before, right. and bring it, bring it to the show. So, which brings me back to uh, not knowing who Steven Sondheim was, which <laughs> watching the movie of Tick, Tick, Boom, which my girlfriend and I watched two nights ago, seeing how much of an influence he was to Jonathan Larson, which he influenced Lynn Manuel Miranda, and who I'm sure Lynn is going to introduce, I mean, influence a whole bunch of new people. But knowing where it all comes from, I think it 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 matters. It makes a big difference. So going back to the movie buff thing right. and musicals, Irving Berlin's White Christmas. Ah, okay, that's a good one to bring up uh, because, and this would be almost in spite of the material. Now, uh, um, I had never seen as classic as it was, is, I'd never seen White Christmas. Uh, I was thrilled to do that as, as I was with any Broadway show being asked to do that. And I did that one because uh, uh, Rob Berman, conductor and good friend who, one of my favorite people on the planet, uh, asked me to do it. It was a limited run, and he said White Christmas, and in my mind, I went, all right, classic music. I like playing classic music, but my expectations to really play drums and hit drums always are limited. And I, and I give it up when I do a Broadway show. It's like, I know I'm not going to really play uh, drums in the most expressive way that I could, but I have always tried to shift gears and in my mind, and this goes to what you were saying before, have fun with the little things and the stylistic things, but you're a small cog in a huge machine and you have to make, get that satisfaction in a smaller way. Now, as far as White Christmas was concerned, uh, they had recorded a cast. They had been touring that show for a while before it made it to Broadway. And there was a London cast recording. And yeah, I knew most of the tunes, not because I had seen the movie, but because Irving Berlin, like uh, 90% of his tunes are part of our, you know, conscious, our collective conscious. Uh, and I heard those charts and I went, I kind of went like, what the fuck? This is all big band stuff. And I got on that band. Uh, I was lucky in that I did the first year of the two years they did it. And they, there were 24 pieces. So there was a, a decent string section. And uh, I love playing with bassist Lou Bruno. And we got to hit. We got to play big band charts. I would say that that more than any other musical I've done felt the closest to playing uh, in a big band. And I will credit that to uh, um, Doug Besterman and Larry Blank, who 
as they have in other shows, co-orchestrated that. I don't know how much instruction they got because you always have to go by choreographers and what the expectations are of the creative team, but they really went for it. And those were big band charts that were a blast to play. Uh, interestingly, us. Uh, almost a companion piece to that was because it was the prequel to that movie in a way. Uh, um, now I can't think of the show and it's the one I did a few years ago. Uh, the Bing Crosby, uh, Fred Astaire musical holiday Inn, which actually introduced the song white Christmas. I got to do a, a production of that. And it, Larry Blank also orchestrated that, but because of whatever the creative uh, input was from the main creative people, it wasn't as much of a big band type show. And of, of course, that must have to do with the, the, the book of the show and the action, what's happening. But White Christmas was a particularly fun show to do because I got to kick a big band more than any other show I've done. It was, and, and you can find out by talking to drummers around the world because they've toured that show so much. And if they've done it with uh, 14 pieces, as opposed to 24, they'll still talk about that as being a fun show to play. Tell me about Finian's rainbow. Again, that was a movie too, correct? Yeah, it's funny you should pick that because I, I mean, I got to do that as part of the encores, which I will say without hesitation is, is the best musical theater gig on the planet for a few particular reasons. Uh, one is you're on stage and you're much you feel like you're a bigger part of the show because people are visual and they're much more conscious of the orchestra. You play, always play the original orchestrations, which means you're on stage with an average of 30 musicians and you are on stage being conducted by Rob Berman, who is absolutely the best. Now I've done, I don't know, 20 some out of those and Finian's rainbow was kind of special in that it really illustrated a very sweet old fashioned musical, uh, particularly dated. And I, I comfortably will say dated about shows and it doesn't have to be pejorative at all. I think people should see things in the context of when they were out. And as you know, it dealt with race relations in a very, <clears throat> I don't want to say it was forward thinking because Broadway is rarely forward thinking, but it still might uh, illustrate uh, a certain liberal mindset at the time. Of course it does, but it's certainly quaint and clumsy now. But I, having said that, controversies as to whether or not to do something unless it's really inappropriate should always be, it was a Broadway classic. It has its charm. You go see it, and afterwards, if you talk about it, you talk about why was why is this kind of dopey, and why are these uh, race relations that they're dealing with clumsy now? But Finian's Rainbow was special when I did it because it was maybe the best example of what the encores meant to me, which was. I grew up listening to a lot of these classic records. And, you know, it's funny, you say, uh, 
you didn't know a lot about Broadway. I was kind of forced on me when I was a little kid. I, my parents even took me to see Ethel Merman in a production of Annie, Get Your Gun when I was a little kid. Probably scarred for life from that. <laughs> um, but uh, all these tunes were things that I heard over and over again. And when I got to do the encores, I was getting to do those exact charts that the original musicians did. So as much as a lot of the standards that I wound up playing in musicals over my life, I really knew those tunes because I heard Sinatra sing them or I heard Train play them or Miles play them. I'm getting to play them in their original form and with a really great orchestra. And that is a singular thrill for doing the encores for me, which is what it should be, because that's the whole point of the encores is let's recreate it so that people now can see a semblance of what it was like to see Finian's Rainbow in, who that would have been the mid late forties. 47, I think. Yeah. And um, it was weird. I, one of the luckiest moments in my life was they later decided to transfer that to Broadway and um, at the time, uh, I wound up being asked to do two other Broadway musicals. I, all I could think of to this day is all the other drummers thinking, you know, Rich Rosenzweig, he's got to choose between three shows. Which three were they? Uh, you know, maybe I'm, it's egotistical for me to even think that any other drummer was even thinking of me. But knowing how competitive it is, I lucked out. I was asked to do that. A revival of Ragtime with also a, a great conductor and friend of mine, Jim Moore, and also a revival of Bye Bye Birdie, which I did a workshop of, which Paul Pizzuti wound up playing, um, which is also great tunes. Uh, we did a workshop with Charles Strauss there, the composer, uh, and I had to choose between three of them. It was kind of bizarre for me to luck out, but it was just the timing and Bye Bye Birdie was technically going to be a limited run because I think it was roundabout. And I, uh, it was timing in a way that just wound up uh, having me choose uh, um, Ragtime instead of Finian's Rainbow. And none of those shows ran for, for more than a few months. So it wouldn't have mattered. I don't regret the decision I made, but Finian's Rainbow, I saw it when they transferred it to Broadway. Billy Miller played the drum percussion book. And I will say that that's maybe the best example of a show that is unabashedly sweet and corny. And I enjoyed every minute of it. So Finian's Rainbow didn't run long. Then you went over to Ragtime. No, no. Um, I chose Ragtime, so I did the, the one-week Encores version, which was almost the exact same thing, other than it was fully staged when they brought it to Broadway. Same leads. Um, they shrunk the size of the orchestra, I think, for Broadway. But I made it a point, I might have even taken off from Ragtime, just to see it, because I kind of wanted to see it. It was, it, it was a a great example of, hey, here's a show that um, my parents always spoke about. They saw when they were younger. 
And uh, I wanted to see it from the audience, which is not usually the case. I, I don't see many musicals. Yeah, I, I, I've asked that question to a bunch of people. Do you see the musicals that you're in? And uh, do you do that or do you not do that? Uh, mm, and I would say, yeah, I know. It's, you think that's a quick, easy yes or no answer. I have. Uh, I was going to ask what you found in general with drummers uh, whether they just go to musicals in general and i always feel like it, yeah what what have you found what's the only one that i know that does that regularly is larry lelly larry sees a lot of musicals just to know what's out there and what you know what trends are right where, where the trends are no that's interesting um sorry I'm, i don't want to cut you off but i i i have done that i just you know I have to have the money to do that, but if there's a, right. <laughs> if hey, there's a chance at the beginning of your show that you're doing and, you know, the company might have you go to another show that's either just opening at the same time, that's when we get the opportunity to see other people perform. It's always good to see your colleagues perform. And, and when before I did Ain't Too Proud, I knew I had a show coming in, so I'd go check out other drummers and see what they did in their pits. But I, I like seeing the shows that I do for a couple of reasons, I guess. One, I want to see what it sounds like, but also mm-hmm. want to see what this show is to know when you're playing a show and you're originating the show, you're in the rehearsal room and you're working with the conductor and you're working with the music, uh, the choreographer and you, you're the one that's coming up in conjunction with the choreographer with the hits or whatever. And of course the dance arranger might also give you some instruction as to what to play also. But when you're watching it from the audience, you can see why they're kicking their legs up or where and what is being triggered when you play a certain drum hit. So, and then you get to see the entire picture and you, you yeah. understand why you're doing well, it. Let me you ask play. you this. It's funny. You mentioned that. <clears throat> Have you been surprised you think you're in, in the room with piano and you're watching all this stuff evolve. And yeah, you see it over and over again. And people think, oh, you already know exactly what the show looks like. And without fail, when you see it from the audience, you never really put it together so that you had a clear image of what it was you were, what you just saw when you go to see it from the audience. And I'm almost always pleasantly surprised that what it looks like, how it, how it um, meshes with the music. You, th- I, you play it night after night, and you, you know, I say this as someone who doesn't go to musicals much for all the reasons you were talking about. Uh, it's expensive. Um, I, I feel like when I have a list of things that I need to do when I have a night off, going to a Broadway show is usually not on the list. And another point that I'm sure you were going to come to and which you're also making, which is I've taken off. Yes, I've taken off to see the shows that I was playing. And mm, this is, I guess it gets out into the public, but I have a feeling other guests of yours who are all very forthcoming confess that it, when you, I think it's okay to say this. And sound people will not be crushed. <laughs> right. Uh, because this is a psychological thing 
not just an artistic thing. And that is when you're sitting in the middle of that sound, and yes, our egos are saying the band is the most important thing. Okay, there are singers, but you know, it's you hear every little nuance of that orchestration, not even selfishly as a drummer, if you want to hear everything with the drums, but you hear all of that. And then you're reminded, no, you're there to serve the singers. And on top of that, no, it can't sound like a record, the records you hear or the other live performances you hear, because you really need to hear those lyrics. Right. It's one thing if you can buy a record and figure out the lyrics, but it's 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 all about how it all goes to with the band and the musicians, and it might be a, a dance record or whatever it is. You have a show. Not only is it the composer, if they're alive, they want you to hear those lyrics, but those lyrics have to drive the story, the narrative. Yeah. So you go out. Uh, the best example of this which is a sound problem. And please forgive me, whoever was running the sound, but I did a recurring, um, actually it was fixed, so there's a slightly happy ending to this, but I played a recurring uh, production of The Wizard of Oz at uh, Madison Square Garden, or as Paul Pizzuti referred to it the other day, the Felt Forum, which we were past the Felt Forum stage. This was called the Theater at Madison Square Garden. They were trying to do a spring uh, commercial success on the back of, of a Christmas carol there because it's a 5,000 seat auditorium. So we did a production of the Wizard of Oz and it was meant to be a live, I keep doing, I keep doing musicals that are live musicals that were started out as movies and they really wanted to, a huge theater, they wanted to give people a live version of that movie, which is so iconic. And we were only 20 pieces, which you and I would think <laughs> it's a 5,000 seat auditorium, you know, man up, go for it. Have a, have a 50 piece orchestra is what we would really love, but okay. But 20 pieces, they built the pit because there was no pit. So we were on the floor in front of the stage, huge visual experience. <clears throat> and, uh, I remember I thought, well, I'll, I'll, I want to see this from the audience, see if it's a big enough spectacle. And the first year I sat out in what arguably would be a great seat. And I didn't know the orchestra had started. That's how quiet it was. So for me, <laughs> uh, wow. I mean, the overture, did I say the overture? Yeah. Uh, and that's, you don't have to cover, you don't have to support any singing. So I would have thought, crank it up it's the overture it's what people hear in the movie there's an overture over the credits the beginning credits so that's the extreme illustration of having to face the fact that as much as it's called a broadway musical that the music is not going to be as much in the forefront as you would think in your mind and be prepared when you go hear a show especially, especially one that you're the regular musician with and be prepared to, as we've all experienced, to not hear all of the things you've worked hard on for nuances, not that they don't count because first and foremost, you do it for yourself as a musician and for the musicians around you 
because that's what making great music is about. And yes, it still translates to the audience at a certain level, just the way Freddie Green's guitar, you almost can't hear, but it's a huge part of that bassy rhythm section. So don't ever take the, the nuances for granted, but when you're out in the audience, not only do you not hear it, this is interesting, but your attention is, especially since you've seen the show, but you've seen it from where you're playing drums wherever, you wanna, you're taken by what you're seeing and the performances, which have so much more depth than you think when you hear it every night, but don't see it. So you got to give it up. Whatever your artistic, uh, not snobbery, but, but intensity is, that when you're in that audience, mm, suddenly that rim shot at mezzo forte doesn't, you know, you might not be aware of it, even though you're listening to your sub play it and you're all ready for it because you work so hard to make it work. It's all part of the show. The four shows that I've seen from the audience when I did Memphis the Musical, I was excited. I was overjoyed. I was like, this is so good. I mean, we won the Tony Award that year. I mean, it was a really good show. It ran for a long time. Then I, uh, what did I do after that? <laughs> it was Lady Day. Yeah, when I, I didn't get a chance to see Lady Day because I was in the show. and. I'm not yeah. going to, I wish I sub out, right? Did you sub out at all for Lady no, Day? I subbed out, which, you know, looking back, I said, like, why did I sub out that show? It was so good. But, you know, to do club dates and to, to do the other things, just like you talked about before, if you're doing the same thing over and over again, you lose the vocabulary to play exactly. other things. So it's important to get out there and do that. And then, uh, why am I blanking? The shows that, I, I mean, Ain't Too Proud? Well, part of it could be COVID brain fog. <laughs> and look, and if, if you've been lucky enough and, you know, you've had a string of, of pretty successful productions, it's, it's understandable. But watching the shows that I've done, I, 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 um, I, I was, when, when a show was really good, it, it, there's a lot of emotion that goes into it. And I'm, I'm kind of a softy inside when it comes to certain things and watching Audra play Billie Holiday. Look, I know how the show ends. I've done it a million times, but seeing her do it, I was like, oh my God, she's got you, huh? <laughs> <laughs> I was sitting there on my couch watching HBO. I was like, oh my God. This is... Then watching the, you know, Temptations. Yes, they all die at the end. I'm sorry. The, Whoa, whoa, you're killing me here. What? The temptations all die at the end? All in like a, a bus accident? What's, what are you talking about? Yeah, uh, well, I won't give it away. But... <laughs> oh, my God. I know, ball I'm of sorry. confusion, man. <laughs> Damn. Yeah, but I was, I was, there's a lot of emotion in that show. Our show is that there's a lot of ups and downs in that show. And so watching it from the audience, it, it, definitely gives you a, a different perspective and you said a lot of other things that are very pertinent like the little things that you do that you think that won't matter but they do matter so they they do and and i think yeah just to repeat when you're in the audience it's a combination of all right it would be nice to hear every nuance because especially 
you think that the technology should allow it. You can hear a great live concert, Broadway's state of the art. Why can't I hear every little nuance? Once in a while you do, uh, but you got to get over that. And you also will find yourself, I don't know. I mean, you, you sort of said this, that um, you almost find yourself at the end going, well, I wasn't paying attention to the drumming because I was wrapped up in the story of Billie Holiday dying or uh, so it's, it's too, there are too many facets involved with a Broadway show to get hung up on certain things, even though it's okay to admit that you were hung up because as musicians, you have to be obsessive about it. You have to, you know, we give it up to the real grumpy musicians who might put too fine a point on certain aesthetic things because we've all learned early on to be a good musician. We, we have to have a certain level of obsession, right? I mean, if you're cavalier and casual about, about uh, how you sound, that's why every night, man, uh, I know I'm not giving a hundred percent every night, but for the most part, you're being obsessive about it. And if you fuck up little things, it sits, it sits with you and nobody else wants to hear you moan about, Oh, you know, I didn't sound too good tonight. Oh, really? You sounded the way you always do. We're all obsessive about it. It's natural. If you weren't, or if you don't sound that way, when you talk to other people, you're either keeping it to yourself or you have some sort of Zen way of looking at it, or you're a liar because <laughs> You can't get, I mean, if there's any, because, you know, now that I'm past 60, anything sage that I'm bringing to this table of yours, which is a very cool thing to preserve here, it's that, um, you know, that, that obsession is what drives us. And you have to not let it break you down in terms of getting too down on yourself but you have to allow that level of obsession, I think, to, that's what, it's what serves you well in a lot of ways. Yeah, last night when I was playing my show, I don't know when the last time I dropped the stick was, but man, I dropped my stick like three times. I'm like, what is going on back here? And I was like, no, I can't do this. I can't drop my stick. What you do know, you think you, it was? I have no idea. You know, well, I'm, I'm kind of switching sticks, so that might have been an, a, an issue. I'm trying to find, you know, I've talked about this before, but trying to find, having the right equipment matters because you're going to be playing the show eight times a week. Right. Hopefully for years, you don't want to hurt your hands because your hands matter. So playing a stick that's too thin, too heavy, the wrong kind of wood, the wrong kind of beater, the wrong kind of taper, you got to get it right. So... Carl Latham came in. He was watching me because he's going to be subbing soon. And he brought a new pair of sticks. I was like, oh, let me try these. And I liked them. So I was playing with them. But then I put them away and I went back to my old sticks and then they didn't feel right. So I was fumbling with them. So again, trying to get, trying to play the right show is right. perfect as is, is, is perfect as I can get it. I realized I wasn't doing it right. So I, 
got rid of those sticks and brought Carl's sticks back. So I was playing and I, I finished the show and I think I aced the test. Uh, <laughs> but I, I know why you would have dropped them. And it wasn't because of something physical that probably happened. It's just more than other situations when you do the same thing every night, the, um, the skill becomes having being in, in the right frame of mind to just be relaxed and do the show. And what I'm saying here is that, uh, if you do something repetitive every night, if there's something that throws off your brain, it could be in the recesses, something in your brain just made you think about the sticks, I think. And, you know, that issue, because let's face it, if we were super, well, I shouldn't say if we were super relaxed, we would never drop the sticks. Physically, we know that the drummers we love who seem to have the most relaxed grip in, grip in the world will drop their sticks. but. I just know, at least I'm projecting onto you, man, but that's one thing we also can all do because at a certain level, we're all doing something really similar. We're bringing our own personalities, but being a Broadway drummer, like how I wrap this all back into the theme of your show, that, you know, what's very cool about doing the show is you have all these different personalities and whatever their histories are, whatever the similarities are, but more interestingly, the differences. But in the end, we're all doing something very singular. And so when you're playing night after night, I find personally concentration, a certain type of concentration is what it winds up being all about from night to night. Why I have a less than great show. I might even make more mistakes, not more mistakes, but I might, I never have a perfect show, but if I was relaxed and what my brain in a relaxed manner told my body to play, if that flow was smooth at the end of the show, I'm happy. It's like, all right, it was a perfect show, but it felt good. It just felt relaxed. If something is making me uptight, it could be something overt, something that happened during the day, or just something that's sitting there in the back of my mind. I could play sonically the same show. Uh, every other musician would, it would sound like the exact same show and I wouldn't feel as good afterwards. Does that make sense? Do you know what I'm saying? Especially when you're doing something night after night where it's the minutia that, that changes the experience. Let's face it, we're, we're, we're going for doing it the exact same way. But the conductor feels slightly differently. Uh, the, in this case, I'm wearing headphones because I'm remoted from a booth, which is the first time I think I've done this on Broadway. And I have uh, the great Michael Blanco's bass playing in my ear. And it's clear and it's amazing. But, you know, there are those little things at play that, might throw you off. I'm not saying Michael's throwing me off. I'm saying things in the recesses of your mind. It's, a, it's an interesting experience playing Broadway musicals night after night. And I remember hearing you talk about struggling with, and you're a youngster compared to a lot of the people you're interviewing, and you struggle with like, God, how long can I do this? And it's not, there's nothing against 
playing shows. I mean, let's face it, the other theme you've been dealing with is how a whole generation is growing up where they want to be a Broadway musician, as opposed to 50 years ago. And before, it wasn't bad to be a Broadway musician, but it wasn't at the top of your list because you had to put up with playing the same thing every night. And now that's a skill, a, so, a psychological skill that you have to bring to the table. So now there's a whole generation who wants to do that. And I defy anybody, including the most enthusiastic 30-year-olds, if they're lucky and they get on a show, after year one, that skill is not so much your drummer. Oh, that, that's not the right way to put it. But your efforts are, a lot of your efforts are the right frame of mind, the right attitude, so that you go, hey, am I going to do this for another five years? Maybe. Am I going to worry about it? Until I decide I, I want to quit, you got to bring it, right? Thank you for listening to the Broadway Drumming 101 podcast. Head over to the Broadway Drumming 101 YouTube page where you'll find unedited conversations that I've had with some of your favorite musicians. On the YouTube page, you're going to find bonus content that I don't feature on my Instagram page or here on the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and click on that little bell at the top so that you'll be notified when a new video is uploaded. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for more.